Well, let's go ahead and pray, and um, we've got a, a repeat lesson kind of here this evening, so we'll get to that. Lord, we thank you uh, that uh, you've given us your word, that uh, you've given us a hope, and uh, that we have something to look forward to, uh, not that we're just looking at this life and, and hoping it, it goes well and, and that's it, but uh, that you've given us a hope beyond this, and uh, we are thankful that you give us the opportunity to fellowship with you forever. And so uh, may we not take that lightly, uh, but rejoice that uh, you do want to know us and that you created us for that purpose, to, to be able to do that. So as we go through your word this evening, may we be individuals that are ones who are uh, knowing that we are not coming in your presence by our own strength, but because of someone else's righteousness. And uh, we're thankful for Christ, and we praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 22. You have to remember this is a series of parables. Matthew intentionally connects them. I've wondered if there may have been a gap of time between this one and the previous one, but the way Matthew records it, it's one right after another after another. But it's all in the same week, probably same day, uh, this Tuesday, <clears throat> where Jesus answers a lot of questions and gives a lot of parables. But as you go to this one, you're, you're thinking we've already heard a parable about a wedding feast and rejected invitations, and you're correct on that. You have in your notes there Luke chapter uh, 14 uh, was an occasion where we had a parable about a wedding feast from a, a ruler who sends it out and people reject it, and his response. This has some of the same details, but it has different details, and it has a very different emphasis on the end. Now, one of the things that people don't realize when Jesus, we, we have the Gospels, we don't have everything that Jesus said. I mean, you think about this, he ministers uh, for three and a half years, that's uh, over a thousand days, now think about what he was teaching and doing. I mean, because every day was filled. It wasn't that he had days off. So there was a lot of stuff that was going on in his ministry, whether it's personal teaching or public teaching or interaction with people that we do not have. But one of the other things that we forget is that Jesus may have at times told the same story in different communities and in different places, but at times shaped that message for either the group of people that are there or for the region they were in uh, and shaped that message to have an application that would um, drive the point home for them. And so you do have some of these stories that seem to be the same, but you're going, they weren't delivered at the same time because you had one group of people in Galilee and one group of people in Judea. I mean, it was like two different cultures. It was like the backwaters of, uh, you know, in our country, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and, you know, New York City and that. And so you had different cultures that he was dealing with, and he might tell the same story, but tell it slightly differently to emphasize a point. So we don't have this, but here's an occasion where you go, I've, I've heard this, this kind of parable before, but this one is different, and it's a major difference, and I think it's a one that um, is one for us just to understand more what salvation actually means. 
uh, give an understanding of that. So I, I, we start this off. It is a similar parable to another one uh, that you've already heard, but the details are slightly different on it, and it's not bad for us to review some of these details because there's a cultural element to this that we don't have today. So let's start in verse number one and, and just read through the whole thing. We'll read right through from verse one to verse 14. We'll get the whole thing together and then divide it out here. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlands are killed. Uh, all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. Went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. Uh, so the servants went out unto the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither and not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You have uh, this wedding feast and you have this invite and in a normal, as you have the paragraph there, in normal wedding in Jesus' culture, an invitation would have been originally sent out at the engagement Okay, that's when, you know, that's the first blank there. Uh, that's when it would have happened. The official announcement of the engagement, you'd send it out, and there'd be an invitation to show up at the wedding. You know, nowadays it's, you know, save the date or whatever it might be that they have, that they have these things. But that's how it worked back then. And then the expectation was is that you would be ready when the feast day happened but courtesy was that you would send servants out and say, it's ready, you can show up now. Okay, you can come on in, it, it, it's ready to go. Uh, you know, you can come from uh, you know, your house and show up now and you won't be showing up early. Everything's ready for you to be here. Uh, and that type of invitation would go out. So when the wedding feast take place, messengers would be sent out again. In this parable, the king sent out uh, that the wedding feast that wedding feast, that the wedding feast was ready, but the response was not expected. No one was going to come. This would have been a massive affront to the king. And think about this, you've, you've, you've sent it out, no one has, you know, no one has indicated whether they're coming or not, and when the official invitation comes for the official day, no one's going to show up and you're just like, but I'm the king, you know, I'm the one who's ruling them. I, you know, benevolent dictatorship, whatever you want to think. But this would have been an affront to the king. But the king's a gracious king because he sends another message out. 
He just goes, okay, you know, in his mind there may have been, you know, okay, they forgot the date, you know, they thought it was, you know, at another time during the day that it was going to start and whatever. And so he sends out messengers a second time. And what you have there, he was gracious, sent these out, but some responded that they had more important things to do. They had more important things to do. Like what? Business. I got business transacts. Sorry, I got to go away uh, and do that. Or uh, they have, as it said, that they went to his farm. One went to merchandise. One had to buy and sell stuff. And one's got to work the farm. You know, I, I got other things to do. Important to me. Okay, so I'm going to do this. So already there's a self-focus here, but then you see the other group of individuals that have a little bit more time on their hands, and you go, oh, they can go to the feast. No, what they do is they beat up those servants and kill them. I mean, what they're showing is a complete lack of uh, care and uh, concern about the king. They don't like him. They don't want anything to do with him. And they treat his servants either with complete neglect or an abuse that shows uh, they really don't care what the king says. Uh, In fact, it sends a message to him. The king responded the way a king should. You're supposed to carry out justice. You've had people murdered that were just merely carrying out their job. Uh, they were messengers of the king besides that. And so what do you think the king's going to do? He's going to come and take care of those that had done the things that had happened to these individuals. And you have a little bit more detail because when we had the other parable, it says he goes out and executes these individuals. Here it makes a very specific statement. Not only does he execute these people, he goes after their city and destroys it. This is a new detail. This is a different detail. And he is giving this now in the very city that he talked about. When he gave this parable in Galilee, he doesn't mention anything about a city. He just mentions the fact that these individuals are punished. So this is an added detail to this. So this parable was about the nation of Israel, about a paragraph and their response to God. They had ignored all the previous messengers. They ignored the prophets. We found that out in the parables previous to this, the two parables we just looked at. They ignored the prophets. They ignored John the Baptist. And they ignored Jesus. And they'd show their response by killing the prophets. John the Baptist had been executed. He hadn't died at the hands of um, the Jews, but he had died at the hands of the Jewish leader. Herod Antipas. Um, And uh, then you have Jesus who is going to die, and that's the blank that's there. Jesus who's going to die in that very week. At the end of the week. All the messengers that they had from God sent to them, inviting them to be part of the kingdom, to enjoy the glories of this. God created mankind to live on this earth and enjoy fellowship with him. That's what the the kingdom is all about initially is the fact that mankind or a man comes and rules on the earth and has peace on earth and men and women live in an environment like they used to and are able to fellowship with him. That's what God intended mankind for. So he's inviting him. You can be part of this kingdom. Ultimately, it's going to be a new heaven and new earth that we're going to enjoy that on. But that's the invitation for the Jews specifically. There's going to be a kingdom set up. They don't want that message because they don't like the prophets that are coming to them. And it's not because they don't like the prophets, it's because they don't like the king. They don't like God. Now, 
you have this uh, statement that Jesus would be crucified and they're going to cry in this very week away with him and they're going to say his blood be upon us and our children. Okay, so what happens within their time frame and their children's time frame? Well, God's response was that the city of Jerusalem along with its leadership was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Within 40 years of this time, that city is going to be destroyed. The temple complex is going to be taken apart brick by brick. You know, Herod's, uh, the Great's Temple took almost 70 years to build. It had been, by the time AD 70 came around, it had been around for like 20, 30 years. But it was completely layered in gold, inside, outside. When the Romans started burning things down in their battles with the Jews that were there, uh, the gold started to melt down the sides of the temple into the temple complex, the brickwork that was there, the floor. And so what do the Roman soldiers do? I mean, part of their pay is the spoil that they take. So they're taking the bricks of the, the temple and knocking them over, pulling what they can as far as the gold out of that. And then when it comes to the, the porch area, they're pulling each brick apart. Massive stones uh, that would have been there, and they're moving that apart so they can get the gold there. And when Jesus talks about another place, there will not be one stone upon another of the buildings that those disciples are looking at. It came to be reality in AD 70. You say, well, what, what caused that? It's the rejection of these people, of all the messengers, especially the Son. And it's because the people didn't like God. So this happened in AD 70. A man by the name of uh, Titus, not to be confused, the Titus of our Bible. But it was, you know, Titus was a common name back then in that culture. Uh, a man by the name of General Titus who eventually became emperor or Caesar uh, eventually after his wiping out of almost a million and a half people in Israel uh, during that time frame. So, okay, this is what the Lord's predicting. So then you get to verses 8 through 10, and there's a wider invitation. Okay, the Jews have rejected this. So you have the story, go out to a larger group, broaden the message. Now that's not to say when we, we talk about, well, let, let me, I'll, I'll get to there, that in a second. When the invitation goes out, the messengers go out and they find individuals, and it says in the story that they found everyone, including those that were good and bad. And you're going, well, wait a second, wait a second. We don't want bad people to be part of the kingdom, sinful people. I mean, this, is, this ruins the picture. Understand what's being said there, that when you talk about good and bad, bad indicated that some of the people were not ones that would normally be in the court of a king. Okay? Think about it. You have people of noble birth, people like that. They're going to be able to show up in the presence of the king. There's some people you're just going, they were never going to have an opportunity to be with that king. Just not going to happen. And what we mean by that, we, you know, um, we would say not bad, but mean estate. You know, they, they, they are you know, out there. They're, just, they're not, you know, not going to be part of it. That's what's being said. Individuals you would never expect to be a part of the king's court and the, the party that was there, they're a part of this. So what's this talking about? Well, the invitation could refer to the message of the good news that is presently going out in the world. Both Jews and Gentiles are accepting the good news. Guess what? You're the, if you're Gentiles, which means you're of every other nation other than Jews, you're the bad. You're kind of like, oh, really? I'm offended. Okay. Um, 
But it's referring to that, and think about in this time frame, it's mainly the bad that's a part of what's going on right now. There's some Jews that get saved, people you would expect to be part of the kingdom of heaven. The message was delivered to them. The kingdom is going to be set up and, and set up in the nation of Israel with the tribes there when we get it all set up. But right now, not a whole lot of Jews, but you've got a lot of uh, those that are in the, the bad category that suddenly are part of this. But understand this, it wasn't as if God hadn't offered things to people in the Old Testament. It's just that the major emphasis is Israel, and what Israel is supposed to do as a nation is reflect their God to the nations surrounding them. And sadly, they're taking up those gods of the nations surrounding them, and they've just muddled the testimony of God completely. Um, and um, you just you know have this. But there were high times where the nation of Israel did have the nations flood into them. You think about this, I was reading through Second Chronicles here recently, or First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. In the time of Solomon, all the nations are flowing to Jerusalem to see the king and to talk with him and see the glory of what's going on, and they're walking away amazed. Uh, it's kind of a foretaste of what happens in the kingdom when Jesus is reigning and ruling. But you do have times where people who are outside the nation of Israel get to be part of the party. Naaman is one of them. I mean, that man got saved, as we would put it in the New Testament vernacular. He takes God on as his God. Uh, you have Jonah, who that book, or his book is about missionary endeavor in the Old Testament. You know why? He, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches a message about Jehovah, and the people believe him, and they repent. So it's not like in the Old Testament that the Jews didn't have some concept that the, the nations would be a part of the kingdom and be able to enjoy those blessings, but they had gotten to the point where they thought, okay, exclusively it's only going to be Jews. But you get hints even in this week, uh, as you read in the book of John, this Passion Week, uh, one of the occasions Jesus is speaking, and you have a group of Grecians that walk up to Philip, you go, why did they ask Philip? Well, Philip is a Greek name because remember Philip the Great was the father of Alexander the Great and that was a common Greek name. So they go to him because he's got a name that they're familiar with uh, and they ask him, we would see Jesus. And at that point, the Lord says, you know, Father, let thy son be glorified. And it's that time where the Lord speaks with a loud voice and he says, it is, it's glorified. Uh, John chapter 12. So, you know, for us looking at this wedding feast, okay, the Jews didn't expect Gentiles to really make it there, but here you have this invitation going out, and you have both good and bad being able to accept it. So that's one interpretation of this. Some also say if we're really going to keep the kingdom in mind, then this is also talking about the fact that it could also refer to the tribulation time, okay? And you go, when's that? What's that? Well, that's when the Lord starts working with the nation of Israel again. And you have the 144,000 witnesses that are going out during that tribulation time, and they're preaching the message of Jesus. They're doing this. They're faithfully doing this. And you have the nations getting saved in this time period. And those that survive that tribulation physically are able to make it into the kingdom. Uh, they're going to enjoy being a part of that kingdom. We forget at times reading the Old Testament where it talks about what's going to happen in the kingdom. It says this. Uh, I believe it's like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 2. Uh, you have passages where it says Egypt and Assyria is going to show up in Jerusalem. In fact, they're going to have a highway that goes to Jerusalem. You know what for? To see the king. 
They want to see him. You kind of go, that didn't happen during the Old Testament times. They could care less. Only reason they were showing up there was to steal stuff. Um, but in, in the kingdom times, you're going to have Gentile nations that you're kind of going, <laughs> those would be the bad people. Egyptians and the Syrians always beating up on the Israelites. They're going to be part of the kingdom. So it could be a reference to that more specifically than what's going on right now. But, I mean, we understand right now that the invitation has gone broader after Jesus you know, d- disappears off the scene to go with, be with his father before he comes back again, that that message goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the Gentile nations, the uttermost parts of the earth. So um, that's the, the understanding here. So we, we've, had, we've had that parable before, that kind of explanation story in the previous wedding feast. The last part of the story is the added thing, and it's for the audience specifically listening to him. And you go, what's the audience specifically listening to him? Religious leaders. You have that just two verses before uh, this whole parable. Verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that they spake of him, or spake of them. They realized, oh, he's talking about us, specifically targeting us. So, this parable, Jesus would have told generally to people in, you know, Galilee and that, like this, but he, now he's in Jerusalem, center of religious uh, ceremonies and worship and leaders and everything else, and he's got the whole religious leaders in front of him listening to what he's about to say, and he adds this last section to it. And it's for a very specific reason. Now, the, the story is this, that uh, the, the king, the feast has happened, and people are there. The king comes to just go around and, and shake hands and glad hand, you know, not normal, you know, uh, the people show up to the king, but it seems like the king just kind of going through and seeing people. And one of the attendees is spotted by the king. The king questioned the man because he was not wearing a garment provided to all the guests. He's not, he says, you're not wearing a wedding garment now, you know, it could be that there was a certain dress code, you know, wear a tie, whatever. You know, in our, our culture, you know, it could be all sorts of things now at a wedding, but, you know, wear a tie, suit, you know, nice dress, whatever it may be. Uh, but more than likely, they had customs like this, and it would be for a king that you would have garments provided for you. You know, spare no expense and uh, the like. And I was thinking, you know, that that's kind of outrageous but i was thinking of a wedding where you had wedding guests provided with garments it's not a story you normally think about a wedding but anybody remember one in the old testament who samson yeah remember samson went out and he uh <coughs> stole garments from a whole bunch of other people in another town and came back to provide it for people that were at this wedding um <coughs> so it you know, we have some hints that this may be a you know, custom, maybe garments are provided, the attendees of weddings, uh, but there seems to be customs of this, especially with kings. And you say, this is a good idea. You go, yeah, because A, you're now impressed by what the king's given you, not what you're, you know, you're, you're not showing up and going, look at what I'm wearing, you know. It's not, you know, nowadays you have these weddings where you know, the bride gets upset at the mother because the mother is wearing something nicer than she is, or one of the bridesmaids, you know, got an outfit and looks a whole lot better, and, you know, have this great rift that goes on and whatever. Um, this takes care of that problem because the king is the one providing the garments. So no one's impressed with their status, 
and it kind of eliminates status at all because everyone's wearing the same garments. There, there's nothing to be impressed by the fact that everyone's wearing the same thing. So when you see this, the king goes about and he's got all these people dressed in, in things that he's provided. And then he goes, well, wait a second, why, why are you not wearing what, what I provided? And you find a man, it's a very specific way that he responds. It's not that he actually responds by arguing or anything. He is speechless because he had no answer. And you say, what happens to him? The king sends him out for punishment. Okay? It's not that he gets thrown out. They grab him and you know, throw him outside the party and slam the door closed. Okay, that's it. Well, yeah, okay, that would be the picture of outer darkness. You know, you're, you're, we're in the lighted banquet hall at night there and then suddenly thrown outside. But outside there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is not talking about the fact that this guy was thrown out. He was out and out tortured and executed. That's the king's response to this. And you kind of go, whoa, 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 that's really, really harsh. Well, you had people that rejected his invitation already and that had been punished. So you say, why does he add this on at the end? It's a great section to remind us of how we are clothed in the presence of God as far as our own status. Because you have in that, that paragraph, second to last paragraph, the guests represent an individual that thinks, or excuse me, and I will say this, the guest represents an individual that thinks he or she can get into God's kingdom in his or her own righteousness. I can show up in my own garment and be okay. See, those that are saved are clothed in a righteousness that's not their own. I mean, you read through the the Scripture, uh, your union with Christ, it's not that it's your garments that God sees, it's Christ that he sees. In eternity, you will have a visible representation of this because you're going to be clothed in white robes, white garments. Okay, that's the the, the space there, robes, garments, that symbolize the righteousness of Jesus. And this this point, you know, I'm just going to go to Revelation chapter 3 where it talks about this. Revelation 3 is that passage of Scripture, the seven churches, letters written to them and, and encouragement given to them about things that they will receive if they overcome, if they're part of God's uh, following. Revelation 3, verse 4, this is part of the letter to Sardis. It says this, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Kind of going, okay, they got garments that are white, and they've not messed these things up. They've kept them spotted from the world. Verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. I mean, here you've got an added thing. Here's a person who's dressed in white whose name is found in the Lamb's book of life. I mean, that's the covering, the protection these people have from the judgment of God is that they're found in the Lamb's book of life and you've got this white garment that they're wearing that symbolizes the fact that they're They are accepted of God, and these are individuals whom Christ is not going to be ashamed to proclaim that these are mine before the Father which is in heaven. You have in verse 18, this is the church of Laodicea. It's the church that really doesn't have a whole lot of good things said about it. 
In fact, the Lord is challenging them with things they need because they think they're okay, they're rich, they're wealthy spiritually, whatever. And he says to them, verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You know, you have this statement that just kind of reminds us of another occasion where individuals clothed themselves because they were naked. It takes you all the way back to the beginning of everything, Genesis chapter 3, where you have them sinning, and the immediate reaction is this. We've got to cover ourselves, and part of that is the, the open shame of wearing the garments in the sense that they want to hide the fact that they've sinned. It's just a natural reaction. Well, what they're really trying to hide is the fact that they've sinned and are trying to do this through their own means, and you, you're kind of humored by the fact that they're trying to cover themselves with leaves, and you're like, eh, it's going to work very well. And who gives them the clothing that they're wearing? It's not them. It's God who has a lamb that's killed. So you have the picture already of an animal whose blood is shed so that you can have covering. And so here the Lord's saying, some of you in this church need to get a garment that covers your sinfulness and that is given to you by not yourself, but by somebody else. I, I challenge you to get a garment that is white. You go to the end of Revelation chapter 19, and here's the, the statement about what's happening just before the Lord comes back to set up his kingdom. And he's got individuals that are there with him celebrating a thing called the marriage feast, and we have what they're dressed like. Verse number 8, here are these individuals. To her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, you understand, it's, they're not saying that the righteousness of the saints have earned them this. That, that is a statement that these people are righteous. They are clothed in a white garment that is clean and pure. Uh, and when the Lord does eventually come back, I, didn't, I, think, I don't think I put this reference down there, but when you get to verse number 14, where you have the battle of Armageddon coming, and the Lord is coming with his armies, and it says this, verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So we have visible reminders for us throughout eternity. Just remind us that we're not there because of anything that's impressive about us. It's because we have a righteousness that God gave to us that we didn't deserve. What the issue is, is that these Pharisees think they are clothed in righteousness, like all the robes that they would wear and all this, that they were clothed in a righteousness that would somehow impress God. It doesn't. And the statement that the man was speechless is something that I'm not sure if the Apostle Paul plays off specifically, but it does, it plays on the whole, the institution of righteousness. And what I want you to, to write down there, Romans, that blank that's there is Romans 3, 19 and 20, and I want you to turn there. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is one of those passages of Scripture you want everybody to read. Because what it does is make sure that everybody understands that the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So you do things against God, he's going to judge you. You do things against your fellow man, he's going to judge you. 
And Romans 1 is about people who have no God. In fact, they've created their own gods and they live their life as if there is no God and they do all sorts of wild things and part of their judgment is that they are sinning and that sin is their present judgment before they are finally judged uh, in a place called hell. You have all of that. And you kind of go, okay, well, those are people who are immoral, unrighteous, you know, they deserve it. You get to Romans chapter 2 and you have people who are religious but they commit all the same sins. Maybe in their own heart, all these things, they, they commit these sins, they do these things, and, and they, they're involved in this, and by the time you get done, you're kind of going, it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. You are Jew or Gentile. Whether you are moral or immoral, it doesn't matter you've committed sin against God and you have this just kind of laid out in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, you have all these universal statements made. What do you mean? What are universal statements? All, none, every. Okay, verse 9. What do we say then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved, we've just proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They have all gone out of the way. They are together. I mean, the idea of unified, together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And so by the time you get done with Romans 1, 2, and 3, you're going, I got nothing to offer. And what the law does is not what the Pharisees suggested. The, the Pharisees suggested that the law was the standard that if they kept this, that God would go, you're okay. Come on into the kingdom. You're, you're fine. They thought that that's what it meant. The 613 commandments that they had figured out, the commandments and prohibitions that they had gathered and said, if we keep these things, this is enough to please God. No. Because by the time you get to the end of this, Romans 3, 19 and 20, just before we are told there's a gift from God, a righteous standing possible, verse 19 says this, now we know, or, and we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is just simply this, the knowledge of sin. So when confronted, you know, think about this man who's in the king's feast, and he says, why don't you have righteousness that I gave you? Speechless. I mean, there's no excuse. What was he going to say? The same here where you have a whole world that everybody understands they're guilty before God. They have the law written in their heart and it tells them all the time, the conscience is telling them, you're not right with God, you're not right with God. It's telling them that. They know this. And so they kind of go, well, I have righteous standing before God. And God goes, no, look at the law, what it says. You have no righteousness. And what answer are you going to give to that? You think about what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment. I don't think there's going to be a lot of arguments. 
you know, oh, I'll get before God and I'll argue my position and whatever. No, I, 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 as you read the account, it says that A, there's a very sober occasion there. People want to flee away from what's there, that it's pretty much silent except for what's going on. And you have these two books that are laid out. One is this, Lamb's Book of Life, all your works. And if you're not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, which was the covering that you could have to protect yourself, you're now oh, let's open your books and see if you've got a righteousness to clothe yourself. It's not going to take very long to go through those pages and suddenly realize, hmm, every day, every day failed God, sinned against him. What am I going to say? You know, you're wrong. No. They're going to be speechless before that standard, and the last thing they're going to hear is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And like it says, these people will be sent out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, this is specifically for, as you read through this, this is specifically about the religious leaders who had their own righteousness that they thought would enter, into, enter them into the kingdom, and the answer is no, because their righteous garments are as filthy rags. Nothing to impress God with because he gave his son for you to be clothed. And you didn't take it. Didn't take it. So at the end is this, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, he will remove all those that have not put their faith in Jesus. Those that have Jesus' righteousness will enter into the kingdom. So I mean, that, that's the statement here. You as Pharisees think you're going to walk right in. You know, I'm impressive. And God's going to go, Where, where's the righteousness I offered you? I, I'm, not seeing, I'm not seeing the garment. And they're not going to be a part of this. Uh, and this is part of what you have when you follow the book of Matthew and you get to Matthew 24 and 25, it has the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You know, what's that talking about? It's not talking about the final judgment. It's talking about the judgment just before the kingdom where the nations go by and the kingdom's that. Follow God, enter in the kingdom. Those that don't, don't enter the kingdom. They're separated out. Uh, and so there is this element of just going through uh, and understanding this, that it's not your own righteousness, but it's a righteousness where a person goes and looks to God for what they need. So any questions, thoughts on it? Passage? Questions? But I mean, it's, it's this one specifically targeting the, the self-righteous, got their own robes, think they're going to make it into the kingdom individuals, and he's gone. You know, it's like the, the emperor with no clothes. You know, it, it finally takes Jesus to, to, to basically say to them, you've got no clothes. Nothing to impress God with. And, and when people suddenly realize it, they are just shocked. They're speechless that they hadn't seen this before.